0: Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Show Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with dev first and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Doug O'Loughlin on the pod. Doug founded Fabricated Knowledge, which is a rapidly growing research publication based on Substack that focuses on the semiconductor industry. And many might know Doug as a very popular Twitter account at Fool All the Time, or also known as Mule.
1: Welcome, Doug. Hey, happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I mean, we've talked on and off about semiconductors for years, so I'm very happy to put it all in one place.
0: Excited to have you on as well. But so let's start off with your background. I happen to know you're someone who has broad experience across different industries. Uh, I think you've been my go to resource over time for consumer trends cosmetics, nutrition, random areas. Before this, we were even just talking about the banking sector, yet you still know far more about semiconductors than most people that invest in the area full-time. So tell us about your journey, how you got here, but also how you built your sector
1: expertise. Okay. So originally I started at this firm called Bowie Capital in Richardson, Dallas, Texas. And, and so I was an analyst there with my boss, who's an awesome, huge mentor. We didn't do any semiconductors, but one of the things that was probably a huge gift is that I was the only analyst there for a while, but but I had a lot of freedom, and my boss never said, hey, don't go do something. Like As long as I did my chores, essentially, I could research a lot of things. And so I covered a broad like area of expertise, mostly consumer, a little bit of tech. And then I definitely fell down the, the hole for semiconductors in particular. I remember I came to the space through ASML, which is obviously this super differentiated monopoly, very much fits the bill for what you want to invest in in semiconductors and actually invest in in all stocks, if it makes sense. And so I I started researching about it. Like, hey, this really cool laser company really matters. And then I started doing like more research and I read, you know, I started reading textbooks. I started reading just like everything I could get my hands on. And so I started researching it a lot. And I went on this like big sabbatical in 2021, something I've always wanted to do. And right before that, like I had a little bit of a gap and I was like, well, I'm at home. It's the heart of COVID. Like there's nothing better to do. So I just started to research a lot about semiconductors and I started to write about it. And then uh, I turned on like a paid option for Substack and I was like, oh, wow, people really want to read about this. So that's kind of how I stumbled into the space. And honestly, how I've learned about it is just reading. That might be like a really lame answer, but reading, following where the questions are and talking to the people who really know what's going on and then just like drawing threads because, you know, you'd be like, oh, hey, this interesting little thing is happening. And then you see so you like go talk to all the companies, you do industry map, you, do, you start talking to all these things and you, you start to like put together bigger pieces. And so, yeah, that's how I kind of got to here. You
0: said I started to get sector expertise through reading, but how do you actually do that? You said you picked up a textbook. So like for starting from scratch, do you think the best thing is go through, read industry transcripts, go talk to people in the industry? I mean, I, I know the answer is kind of all of the above, but if someone is to ask you, Doug, help me figure out this new sector, what are like the three things you would say, hey, you need to start here from day one?
1: This is my research process because everyone's research process is very different. For me, I have to be at least a little interested in it. And so I have to have an interest in it and start to follow along. Usually following along starts with the industry transcripts. Like, hey, they talk about their company or you know, other competitors talk about their company and just kind of following up with that. Expert calls, whatever. Just filling your mind with little bits and getting the language kind of like embedded into your brain. But then, in my opinion, when it's time to take a step much deeper, the first thing I do is always find a book. So. MEMS is a perfect example recently I did this really big dive into it there really wasn't great books but essentially I went and started reading about everything possible that could ever be read about it I read research papers I read you know the actual research papers like hey here's the MEMS resonator I wouldn't like go back and read the history oh and then probably the most important part especially in semiconductors is things are very complicated to start today like you know talk about three five nanometer stuff it's very complicated but back in 1970 it really wasn't that complicated But really what's happened is that same process in 1970 is just a super scaled up till today. So often starting in the beginning is one of the best ways to start with the context. And then like following that history all the way till today, you understand the maturation of the industry cycle and then like it will eventually click.
0: That makes sense. So there's been a provocative statement going around that says Moore's law is dead. And I guess I want you to address that. So first, can you describe what Moore's Law is and then why or why not is it dead?
1: So Moore's Law in the original statement, I think, is it can be hard to remember. I I believe it's a doubling of transistors every two years. But importantly, the cost goes down as well. So the cost and energy. So pretty much back in the 1980s when this was first happening, if you shrank one big semiconductor into half the size, it would be twice as fast. And it would be like, you know, half energy. A lot of it is because, like, literally the electrons have less distance to travel. And so there was this really linear relationship that started in the late 1980s that finally kind of broke down in 2012, we'll say. Denard scaling was the first to break down. And Denard's is kind of like, there's like lots of little attributes along the way. Denard's is the energy portion. So what happened is, hey, they shrank the semiconductor, but the energy didn't get the same kind of improvement. And so that happened in the early 2000s, let's say 2007. Then somewhere around 2012, 14 whatever the actual physical shrinking started to slow as well as the speed so frequency started to cap out and that means like you know you shrank it and it didn't just become faster because the power and the speed kind of had that like the scaling law kind of broke down and so what we did is we made a lot of cores so hey you know what we can do we can just double the core count and that will effectively double it again so that's what we did That's also kind of a scaling law, but that's going to break down eventually because of Amdahl's law, which is like a a parallelization law that's like probably too technical. But pretty much what's happening is as we've gotten smaller and smaller, and these are very complicated machines that we're making, we're hitting these asymptotes. We keep hitting these asymptotes, first in power, then in frequency, eventually in cores. And so that is what's happened that has kind of made Moore's law, quote unquote, dead. The linear scaling law has broken down. And now, so AMD or NVIDIA will say, hey, Moore's law is not dead. They'll put their transistor count. But the kind of counter to that is the economic Moore's Law is dead, if that makes sense. Like these costs are starting to increase. And especially making a leading edge semiconductor, it's a lot harder than it used to be. There is this transition to FinFET, which is like essentially a bump instead of a flat planar transistor, really, really technical. But then we, we essentially added a dimension. And now going forward, we're going to do gate all around, which like really is complicated. So these things, we essentially have like the free ride of the easy technology, getting better, faster, cheaper every single year. And that's what I would say is the end of Moore's Law. I don't think transistors are going, or transistor count and speed is going to stop scaling. That's a very important like part of the, the industry. But I think that it will stop scaling in the free lunch kind of way that Moore's Law enabled for like 40 years or something like that. So that's what Moore's Law is Dead means. And I think that the people who say it's still alive kind of semantically pick that away, but I would say the classical Moore's Law is dead. There's a whole second playbook that I think is going to kind of transition into what we want to talk about. It's called more than Moore's, And essentially, that's like the playbook that we're going to use to essentially able to scale this transistor count in a way that's economic, that doesn't use the old Moore's law way, which is mostly planar shrink. So. Okay,
0: that makes sense. And thanks for describing it in a way that you know everyone can understand. But in a piece that you wrote, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But in that piece, I think you talked about Moore's law. And then you said, hey, heterogeneous compute, if I'm saying that correctly, is the next paradigm shift. And so map that for us, like describe what you mean by, hey, Moore's law is dead, but then this, you know, clearly you're still bullish about semiconductors
1: being more relied upon and prevalent. So what's going on here? So heterogeneous compute kind of is the solution or the solution out that, you know, the industry kind of sees. And so most of that relies on advanced packaging. Advanced packaging in particular is Pretty much what happened was we're going to use some software analogies, right? That I feel like that might help. So DevOps, I believe, kind of broke it into all these little pieces so you can be agile. You can iterate on each of the different parts. Pretty much before, what was happening is there's this giant monolithic flow, and that monolithic flow away has kind of stopped scaling. So people are dumb in the semiconductor industry. They kind of look over next door and they see, hey, well, what if we broke it into parts and we started to iterate on each of the parts? And some parts don't need to get better. Like some parts don't have to be the most expensive, smallest parts, but some parts do. Why don't we really focus on the parts that do and the parts that don't, we can just kind of glue it together because in the past, it would all have to be on the same piece. Now what's happening is advanced packaging kind of enabled being able to to pick and choose from the different types of like the different, you know, ones at 28 nanometer, which is a really cheap node. Ones at five nanometer, it's really expensive, but it's really fast, but that's really what matters. And so- that heterogeneity is what's heterogeneous compute. Essentially, it's like kind of putting things all together. And that's like on the process end, meaning like using different scales of technology, using five next to 28 and making sure to glue them all together. And the gluing and be able to glue them faster and as advanced packaging, that's like the entire trend. And that's a huge and important deal. But on top of that, there's also this other thing that they can use that never happened before really is specialization. And I think the analogy that I often use, because I think everyone kind of intuitively understands it, is like Bitcoin mining is probably the best one. So in the beginning, you could Bitcoin mine on your CPU, right? But then they figured out, well, the SHA-256 algorithm is extremely compute intensive, why don't we do it on your GPU? And then they started to realize, well, you know, it's a fixed algorithm. Like, why don't we make an entire chip that's just dedicated to Mickey and that's called an ASIC. And so that's the Bitcoin mining today. And like, you know, I'm sure you've seen the differences for the cost. Like, you know, they are 100x improvements from a GPU over a CPU and an ASIC over a GPU. And so the thought process here was, why don't we kind of glue this chip together and kind of make sure we can specialize different parts of the chip. So this part will be a GPU and that'll be good for, you know, video processing. This will be an IPU, will be good for like, you know, image processing. And probably the best example of this that I think in practice is the Apple M1 chip. Because the Apple M1 chip, it is monolithic in terms of like it's all on one piece, but it is specialized. So the really intelligent hardware designers at Apple looked around and was like, well, you know, if you use a MacBook, you're really only using these functions And so why don't we specialize so that you can have faster functions? And so like, you know, the MacBook doesn't have to do everything in the entire world, which a general CPU does. It really has to play some video, maybe do some acceleration for like video processing and stuff like that, as well as be able to browse. So they kind of broke apart the chip and they started to specialize all these things and they kind of made this chip kind of feature fit to the problem. And I think my favorite analogy here as well is there's like a Charlie Munger analogy where to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. The CPU was a hammer. It got 50% larger every year. So you could just, no matter how big problems got, your hammer got larger, you could just beat them down. But now we are trying to move away from that. And the specialization is like, okay, there actually is a toolkit. You could bring a screwdriver, you could bring pliers, you could do all these different things. And now we're gonna make all these chips to be a toolkit to be suited to solve the problem. And that way we don't have to use the like more expensive, smaller processes. We can use a more specialized toolkit. And so that's the heterogeneous compute like paradigm shift is that, hey, everything was generalized. Now we can do some specialization. AI is a perfect example of this. Like NVIDIA, essentially the GPU isn't even like really a GPU. It's like very focused on being an AI compute unit. So, and everyone is pretty aware of this and everyone is trying to make special custom silicon to fit the need. Like the TPU at Google is another good example.
0: Thank you so much for that explanation. Because one, first of all, the M1 chip on my laptop is freaking amazing. And it's like one of those things that just blows your mind when you're using the the laptop for the first time. You're just like, how is it this fast? But I didn't know about that specialization that ha- that's happening. That makes a ton of sense now that you describe it like that. But I think the analogy that you mentioned of kind of how DevOps was breaking apart, like breaking apart into microservices and then having some companies. So, you know, one company's really good at monitoring. One company is really good at document database. One company is really good at analytics processing, right? So on and so forth is interesting to shift into the semiconductor industry, right? Because what happens is it seems like they got broken apart and now there's fab, there's fabless, there's design, there's lithography. I don't even know what some of these terms are or if I'm even saying them correctly, but I guess... Like, how would you describe in a brief, because I think there's so many things that you could go into in so many different areas, but let's just do high level basic explainer. What the heck is going on with the basic semiconductor industry? What are the components that we need to understand to say, OK, this is why a fab works with a list, which works with a design shop or something like that?
1: The breaking apart is a really good analogy and probably the best place to start. Back in the day, in the, you know, the 1980s, Intel, when Intel ruled the land before, even before they made the CPU, whatever, we'll just do like the glory days of Intel. Intel did every step of the process. They made their machines, they made their own process to make the chip, and then they made their own chip using their own process, and then they sold it to the customer, completely vertically, vertically integrated. At some point in time, people kind of realized, well, actually the designing of the chip and the making of the chip are kind of two separate things. And as long as you have like a consistent language or code to talk to between the two, you could just have these guys over here make the chip. And send the code over to the other guys and be like, hey, follow these instructions and figure it out. Because making the actual chip, very hard. Designing the actual chip, very hard. So if you have those kind of two separated, they can both do their own thing. And both can iterate and make a better product. And together, they'll have two separate roadmaps that both are improving. And you're not relying on one or the other. That's actually kind of one of the reasons why Intel has flopped so hard is that they had their own special process and had their own special design the process failed, the design failed, the process. And so, like, they actually probably have just started to fix the process, but now it's a design problem. So, fabless is when you don't have a fab, you just design chips. Probably the best example is AMD, NVIDIA, Qualcomm. These companies, they are chip companies, but they don't have any fabs. They don't do any of this stuff. I think Jensen actually famously said, you know, we are an IP company, like, we email over the files. You know, there is no fab making going on here. We just send the intellectual property to be made. In this case, the one who's making it is TSMC. TSMC is, like, the company to know on the process side, meaning that, like, they make and fab all these chips. TSMC, I think, has, like, 90% of the gross profit dollars and 50 or 60% of the global revenue for Foundry. They really are the best at the game. Intel has kind of fallen behind TSMC, and TSMC just continues to execute like a mofo. Like, they just do not miss they're one of the most impressive companies in the world. And so uh, Samsung also has a foundry, but we're just going to use TSMC in this case. So TSMC takes all these designs. These designs are really, really, really hard. And there's actually a whole like subset of software called EDA, which is like uh, electric design assistance or something like that, uh, essentially to have this language and make sure it's all verified and put all the blocks together. And they use this. This language to make this chip and then they physically make it in reality and making the chip in reality is truly one of my favorite things the entire world like to take a big step back it's really magical because what we're doing is we're placing atoms with like five nines of accuracy, and it's like a 1000 steps to make a semiconductor and each step has to have five nines of accuracy. Because if it was just 99%, right, do the math, 0.99 to the thousandth, like, you know, you get like 20% effective yield. So it's very highly accurate. We are placing individual atoms. We're doing all these steps. And so TSMC is kind of like the cook they're cooking in the lab and they have all this technical know-how on how to cook the best recipe. Maybe one of the problems that Intel had is they only cooked one recipe and that's kind of where they fell apart because whenever their recipe became less important, they're like, well, what do we cook? We only know how to cook this one process, this one recipe versus TSMC is taking all these orders from everyone. So they have all this expertise of how to cook with any flavor, any cuisine, whatever. But the thing that they're cooking on is also like this whole other thing called Semicap, you know, Semiconductor Capital Equipment Companies. That's the likes of ASML. ASML is probably the iconic company. ASML is a lithography company, which is just truly one of the coolest technologies ever. And pretty much what they're doing is they're emitting these beams at like 14 nanometers and then it gets like split. But these tiny, tiny little beams that print patterns onto like a silicon wafer and the silicon wafers super like ultra mega pure has like the flattest surface ever it's all done in a vacuum otherwise like you know one particle could ruin the whole thing remember it has to be like perfect accuracy and so they're printing with this like super small light a really like perfect little pattern onto a wafer and then they clean that away then they do something called etch so it's lithography etch and then they deposit there's like a there's like essentially lithography, etching, cleaning, like CMP, CVD. So there's all these different steps and tools and processes. But the net effect is that they have this toolkit that can place atoms, like it's literally atoms, at like a microscopic level. So we're talking like the line width of these things are like 30 nanometers for the features. And they're they're able to make all these like super precise structures with like Five nines of accuracy. It's one of the coolest magical things that's going on that people just don't don't appreciate and understand and take a little bit for granted that we are literally placing atoms with perfection so that we could trick the sand into thinking and doing all of our complex software problems on top of. And you know, those tiny little transistors, those ones and zeros all gets aggregated and brought up to higher and higher levels. And then we're pretty much we're just storing information physically using electrons at a microscopic level. Awesome, cool technology could go on about this all day. So yeah, that's the cap side of things. So taking a big step back, the tools are like kind of like the cooking tools. TSMC is the best cook in the world. You know, they use these different pots and pans and blenders and whatever to make the recipes from their customers, which are the Fabless. And the Fabless guys are like, they are like the guys thinking about, hey, here's the recipe we want to cook. And then the Fabless guy takes the end product, the end dish and sells it to a customer. And so that's probably the most simplified version. The best analogies I can use of the entire semiconductor, like, you know, value chain.
0: <laughs> My mind's just kind of blown. You're describing magic, like the lasers and the vacuum sealed rooms and like, you know, all these things. I mean, it's just, it's really mind blowing.
1: There's so many things, man. Like that's probably what keeps me like excited about this whole thing is like, for example, I think a class one clean room has one particle in a billion parts of air. And importantly, I think they swap out the entire clean room in like 60 seconds. So this entire like, you know, giant vacuum warehouse with millions of square feet, the entire air is being turned over like every 60 or like 120 seconds. And so like this is all just so there's no defects, like any tiny little particle ruins the process. There are so many levels of like engineering. It's truly the most complicated And engineerable, and like the highest volume manufacturing, most complex thing we've ever made. Maybe bioproduction stuff is up there as well, but it's really cool what we're doing, and I think that I just wish people like appreciated it. Like it's magic. We're seriously making the physical world into the abstract, and we're doing it via silicon.
0: That's amazing. One of the things that everyone will will talk about is: do all the companies in this space just have instant moats because of that? technical expertise. You said, Hey, the fabulous people really good at doing what they're doing, right? Packaging and sending it to the customer, you know, putting the meal together and distributing to the customer. You have the cooks and then you have the tools, right? And it seems like everyone has this really specific thing that they're supposed to be really good at. And presumably, if they keep getting really, really good at that one thing, nobody else can come in and take that share away from them, right? So I guess, is that true? is that the case? Like, can anybody really take from each other or how is that working?
1: So I would say that's very true on the semi-cap side, because we're going to start with cap and go to boundary then fabless. So these tools are very hard to make. And truly it is like, these are all engineering marbles. And the second you get it to work once, you're kind of like, okay, not going to do it again. The costs are so intense that it's very hard to replicate. So I think EUV, for example, billions and billions and billions of dollars, like talking like tens of billions of dollars, 20 years of investment, truly, even if you were to make, and maybe EUV would be like a place where you if you could justify the investment, but like, let's say you, it would cost a billion dollars to break into this market that sells two and a half billion annually. And it's a risk like, so there's this kind of like weird size dynamic of there's so much capital needed to break into these markets. And they're all little niches. And even if you break in, you end up being number two. So I wouldn't say it's quite a monopoly, like ASML's monopoly is a true technological monopoly. But in reality, what happens is it kind of ends up in like a 60-30-10 or often 60-40. And the 90-10s usually end up kind of like 60-40 because everyone wants to feed the second source. But um, it's very rare there's four companies in any of the sub industries. This is just on the semi cap side. Now on the foundry side, I would say once upon a time, there were like 200 something companies at the leading edge. So the leading edge is the smallest geometry. Yes. And this is like, this is like 1980. Okay. Every year people drop out because it gets harder and harder and harder. And one of the things is like, this is a capital intensity battle that seems very hard. You're playing with numbers at just huge scale, right? TSMC, I think, is putting down like $30 billion this year. Intel's like putting down $25 billion. Samsung's probably putting something like that down too. And so if you want to be playing with the big boys, you have to be putting down big boy dollars. And if you mess up, you're screwed. So every year, like Global Foundries, for example, used to be at the leading edge. And what happened was they just kind of couldn't keep up. They couldn't put down the dollars. They kind of weren't executing. They weren't at the pace. There's like a pace in order to... Moore's Law is is dictated by this pace everyone put together saying every two years, we're going to shrink it. So that kind of is definitely an interesting dynamic. And essentially, you fall off, you never come back. I don't think anyone has ever fallen off the leading edge and come back. And so now truly it is TSMC, Intel and Samsung. Those are the three companies at the leading edge and if you're at the leading edge you have the best semiconductors. They truly are just better in every way shape and form. But that being said, at the leading edge there's really only one. Truly TSMC has gapped Samsung and Intel. But I don't know if it's an instant moat, but whatever they're doing there and this is where like the magic of the cooks, we have no idea, their process Whatever they've done is truly magical and doesn't seem to be replicatable. And for all the money Intel is spending, and they truly spent a lot of money, they have kind of fixed their process, but like TSMC just continues to cold execute. And importantly, TSMC is executing everyone's process because everyone is giving them cooks. Intel is just trying to cook their own recipe. And so TSMC definitely does seem to have some kind of special technological moat. There's like a mix of culture, technological know-how, or something like that. And then last, we're going to talk about Fabulous. Fabulous actually, I think, has the lowest moats, if that makes sense. Because in theory, if if you – I mean, it is very hard to design these ships, and the cost of designing these ships has been like having like a doubling every like two years or something. So there's a, there's a whole problem just because as it gets smaller, it gets harder to design. There's less – we don't have enough designers on the hardware side. But the Fabless thing is interesting because you could be the best at designing your certain type of chip, for example, an FPGA or a GPU or an int or like a CPU. But weirdly enough, the market might shift underneath you. And so while you're the specialty, you know, while you're the best at making this type of chip, the market might need something else. So, and that's what I think is really interesting about covering this space is oftentimes the actual company doesn't lose their expertise rather, but their market becomes less or more relevant And that's really good for the company, right? Or really bad for the company. But frankly, it's not in their control. And it's very hard to kind of make a shift outward. So um, that's kind of how I would think about like their competitive advantages. But there are obviously some clear, like on the fabulous side, there's some clear stuff we're always going to need. A good example is RFFE, which is radio frequency front end. Those devices that make all your smartphones possible. And when I mean smartphones, I mean radiating the signal to the tower and back that is like black magic that is extremely hard to do and replicate. And there's only a few companies that have really been able to do a good job of that. Kind of a huge moat. And that mixed signal, so meaning that it's both analog because the signal is being done in analog, but it's also digital when it gets to the phone. Those mixed signal applications, really, really hard, very special and very important. So there's a lot of super technical know-how kind of moats in these companies, but. It just varies. And, and, yeah. and obviously, Fabulous is where you can get disrupted. Like Intel CPU is the perfect example of that. Yeah. But I think that's enough on that topic. Yeah. It, it makes sense. I, I think what's
0: interesting is even when you're talking about moats, it sounds like there's technological moat. There's even in some cases, maybe a capital moat. And then there's frankly, just like a probably execution moat, right? Of just, hey, you've, you've moved uh, a lot quicker than anybody else. But we've covered the companies behind the chips or I guess how the semiconductor chips are made and how that process works. But let's talk about the chips themselves, right? So we've seen a lot of different chips or things that I call chips. I think there's sensors. You wrote a whole piece about timing chips, which I kind of read and was like, okay, interesting, but like I just sort of don't know what these do. Then there's TPUs, GPUs, CPUs. There's all these sort of things. Again, you know, if we could do a general explainer of just like what are the things we should know broadly about why there's
1: all these different chips that exist and why they need to exist in that manner. So in the beginning, we were making vacuum tubes to kind of replace that. I would say the, the first chips were analog, you know, the continuous versus discontinuous. Like digital is one and zero, meaning that we make the signal. Analog is a continuous wave. In the beginning, most of our chips were analog because they were mostly focused on working in the real world. TXN, for example, is the, like, the iconic company in that way at some point in time. And so analog obviously still matters because, you know, whenever the electronic interacts with the real world, whether that is sensing the temperature or like, you know, moving your chip signal. So in order for your phone to work, whenever it interacts with the real world, that's analog. And that's really important. And probably was like the first class subset of chips using mostly focus on the continuous wave stuff. Now let's step like to like the whole universe of digital chips, Within digital, meaning one and zero, where we have an understanding of like the information, we're encoding bytes. There is memory. Memory is really important. So there's hard drives, which aren't really semiconductors. They're kind of like semiconductor and JSON. But then there's DRAM and NAND. NAND, most of the people, I'm assuming, is like built a computer. Understand? It. DRAM is it's memory that as long as you put electricity into it, it will remember stuff. It's much faster, and it's kind of like your working memory it's like consciousness or something when you go to sleep it's gone that information is gone the nand is like your deeper memory that holds on to information so that you can always recall it and the memory there will you know not always but it will it will work without electricity so it's like a more permanent store of like information and then on the other side the digital processing stuff we have the cpu the cpu is probably like the king the historical king that is becoming less relevant the cpu is just a generalized compute unit that can essentially do whatever you want. It can process any kind of information. It can take anything you want in and, and you know, calculate it and do that and, and put it out, okay? But GPUs are a little different. GPUs are, like, the next step on this plane. And so there's, in this analogy, we're going to talk about CPUs, GPUs, FPGAs, and ASICs. And that is an actual spectrum of programmability. So CPUs are, like, almost perfectly generalized, and can you can use them for anything. It might not make sense to, but you can figure out any problem with it so that's why it's so important GPUs are obviously made by Nvidia was like the person who invented it essentially like like there was a few others but they really are like the iconic GPU company and they're mostly used for graphics processing units so in the beginning when we realized you know we're going to have visual displays for all this stuff making these visual displays were really hard you know making an image each of the bytes is a little piece of information and it's massively parallel so in order to display an image and multiple images in succession each of the pixels has to be calculated so jensen and his like infinite genius figured this out and was like okay we're going to make a gpu and the gpu is very important for video games was probably the first big thing but you know fast forward a little bit and i think Behind the core of it, these these tensor units, I don't really know. But there's a lot of matrix multiplication, pretty much. They're just giant matrix multiplication machines. And then at some point in time, they realize, hey, that's really good for AI. So that's kind of what GPUs have been co-opted into today. They're these amazing matrix multiplication machines. Now, the next step further down, more is FPGAs. So GPUs are kind of still, so GPUs is general purpose GPUs. You can kind of, there's like a lot of software tricks to be able to cut the problems that are general purpose into and then use a gpu to solve it using matrix multiplication but then FPGAs are even more specialized they can still be reprogrammed but my understanding is like it's a data table i couldn't really tell you the mechanics of how FPGA really works but it's it's a more specialized thing but it's it can be repurposed to solve your problems, but it's also can we re, kind of repurpose but can of also be kind of hardened? So it's more specialized than a GPU. And then last, we have an ASIC, which is fixed function, meaning that its entire hardware setup is to, to solve a single problem. Like the Bitcoin ASIC is a perfect example. You know, TPUs are kind of an ASIC where it's like, hey, it's made just for TensorFlow. You know, the hardware is completely co-designed around the software or the software problem to be solved. And it says, hey, we're going to solve this problem really, really good. So that's kind of the, the levels of like the digital chips that you need to understand. And TPUs are kind of, like, they're kind of ASIC-like. I couldn't really tell you where that really falls on the dichotomy. But TPUs are made by Google specifically to do the TensorFlow software universe that they have, they have control over. So if you own your own software stack, you can dictate the hardware to do that.
0: It's a complicated topic to explain, but you did a great job of doing it. If you were to put uh, like your galaxy brain thinking hat on, though, and you're predicting to the future, you have your crystal ball or whatever, and you're saying this is what's going to happen. Is the world trending towards more of that ASIC side because the Bitcoin use case and then we'll talk about AI in a second, but I'm assuming some AI use cases, I'm sure there's probably some other use cases out there, right? Like, is is that really where the world is trending? And is that also why like some of these big cloud providers are buying these? Well, now I have to think about what they're buying, but I guess they're buying fabulous design
1: companies to to mm-hmm. build it. So I, how do you tie those two together? Yeah. Let's loop this back to something we talked about in the beginning, the M1 chip, right? Where it's like, it's a much more specialized than you know just your Intel chip. And so In the future, in order to get around the Moore's Law stuff and give us better performance, we are going to have to co-design hardware and software together to make better effective compute unit. In a perfect world, we know exactly what we want. Like everything's hardened. Everyone has like this AI use case or this AI software stack. And so we make ASICs for it. Then, you know, everything's solved, essentially. It's like a lot easier to do the problem it's not a perfect world. Things are still changing. And when things are still changing, the general purposeness is very highly valued. So I would say the world is becoming more specialized and less general. That's definitely one of the safest bets of all time, truly. And one of the reasons why that is, is because Moore's Law is really breaking down. Why specialize? So this is like a good example. Actually, in the very beginning, like the 1980s, essentially everything was specialized. Um, why generalize anything? There was a lot of specialized chips back then. And then at some point in time, someone realized, well, if our process gets better every single year, why specialize at all? Because this specialized tool you have to make just for this little industry, why don't we make this giant, the best generalized thing? And every year it gets better at two times every two years. And so why bother? Like, you know, in two years from now, yeah, it could be specialized, but like, it's going to be twice as good. So who cares? Like we could just throw more compute at it. That was like a safe bet. So as long as Moore's Law was alive, why bother specializing? Because in a decade, you know, there's like another... Quadrupling, like, you know, 10, 20, 30x better. So why bother at all? But Moore's Law breaking down kind of forced the specialization because like, hey, now that we can't just push endlessly with more compute, we have to think about it. And, and the way that we kind of thought about it to go forward is specialization. So yeah, specialization is one of the most important themes in in the semiconductor world. And it's going to be for a very long time. We just don't have the free lunch that was the glory days of Moore's Law. So and if we did, if we still did. I don't think we would be having this conversation as much about the specialization. Like it it would be the same old kind of thing. Yeah.
0: You just cleared up the brain fog in my mind about Moore's law and all this stuff. Like that makes a ton of sense, especially with the analogy of using it from the, the 1970s and 80s, which also makes it, it's kind of crazy to me to think that we were that specialized back then, but then, as you described it, I'm like, okay, that that makes a ton of sense how that happened. Well, but it's just, yeah.
1: Like I mostly have it from books on like the bookshelf right behind me. Everything wasn't super specialized, but think about it this way: you were selling solutions, so you'd make the entire thing yourself. So why make a general purpose chip for a specific product? Like everything. Like for example, some of the best software companies in the beginning were selling. I think Teradine, for example. They made their own software. In order for them to sell the testing chip, they made their own chips. They made their own software. They made the entire freaking thing, right? The entire vertical stack, the whole thing was made by themselves. So, so it just didn't make sense because their their focus on selling the end widget on all the middle value chain wasn't broken up like it was today. And the breaking up was really important because then any all of them could start to integrate. And as as long as it all worked together, everyone gets to move forward without having to think about all the junk in the middle. So.
0: We have to talk about the buzzword of the year, AI. And so large language models, they seem like they're very large. And (laughs) I imagine there's a lot of training. There's a lot of just different things that are happening. I mean, obviously, tons of energy just being consumed by these beasts of models. But then also a lot of compute, obviously, a lot of chips being used. I guess, is anything different with using an LLM versus what we've described of, you know, obviously, you're talking about the ASIC Use case and stuff. So maybe that's separate right in Bitcoin mining and things like that. But is there anything different about the process of training an LLM that we should be aware of versus gaming chips? Or again, GPUs are being used for currently ML use cases, right? So is there anything different that we should be thinking about?
1: I think the thing that's really interesting and important is there's this paper that came out during chat GPT-3, which honestly seems like years ago. I think it was like early 2020 or something. I'm like, oh, my God, that feels like an old – like you have like this piece I wrote about it back then. I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like it's like ancient history. But essentially it talks about the scale of large language models and like how much bigger can we go? And the answer is I think – at back then, they thought three or four orders of magnitude higher in terms of compute data. And so essentially the whole like research paper, and I think they think it can go further now, but pretty much the conclusion is, you know, What's the benefit? Why make it bigger? Well, because it could get better. Like we and we don't really know, like it's it's a true black black box, right? Like these little parameters, like like someone described it as like essentially like there's a lottery ticket thesis, like essentially has 175 billion lottery tickets. And whenever they come through, you kind of brute force the relationship eventually with a big enough model. And this paper essentially said, hey this can scale to two or three more orders of magnitude, meaning about like 10,000 times bigger or something like that. So where does that end? I don't know. And no one really knows. That's the reason why the models are getting bigger because they get better. It's like one of the few places, like all the AI research, one of the reasons why the like large language models is so de jour is because you can know with certainty, like obviously it takes a lot of engineering behind the scenes that if you make the model bigger, it will get better. So they're like, well, That's a very clear, straightforward roadmap. This is the first time we've had a straight roadmap for making AI bigger. And so that's a huge compute problem, like this ridiculous, huge compute problem that I think is really interesting. And so like they'll just actually take away the large language model because that that is like the cutting edge biggest models. But even just like a face recognition model, right, like just an image net, right? Think about the difference in compute for example facebook the like and let's not use the fact that they do image recognition on your face stuff like like the og facebook feed right was like you posted something it got uploaded into a database that database was retrieved by your friends and then it showed the values formatted of a database you know like that's a really simple compute problem like super trivial that is like just a gpu problem no one is like there's this compute problem with like fetching database values for your social media likes or whatever no that's not a problem but you know what there is a problem of it's like hey i want like every search is going to be a chat gpt thing or whatever so now instead of you know fetching a database thing they're going to be like okay i'm going to run this like you know 10 million model parameter you know inference that is like three zip codes more compute of complexity. And so that's something that like, I think A16Z wrote about this, where it's like, hey, essentially all this AI stuff is going to come in at a lot lower gross margins because the raw compute power is going to be so much higher. And I think that's like one of the most interesting things. And one of the things that got me like really excited about semiconductors is like, oh, all these incremental future use cases of technology is going to come in with a much higher hardware cost. And so semiconductors in the big picture really benefit Let's say like all the incremental use cases are not all, but most of the incremental use cases in the next 10 years are going to have a lot more AI in it. That's going to be a totally different zip code of compute. And so that's a big problem. And these models are going to get better because the bigger models tend to be better. And so the more state of the art, it just has more compute. Like obviously the models that people are really focusing on are the big training models that are being done in these huge super pods by NVIDIA and like the cloud essentially. No, but like even take that back, like the model of like the facial recognition model on your phone or the facial recognition model on your Nest, those are so much more compute intensive as well. So even at the low end, there's going to be this huge insertion of AI and, and a lot more compute. And we're going to figure out, we're going to harden this stuff. So it's like, right now we're in in an explorer mode how much bigger, how much better can we get? But when we figured out what the optimal solution is, we will like definitely be able to deflate some of that cost, but it still will come in at a lot higher bill in the end. I think that's the important like takeaway, if that makes sense.
0: That makes a ton of sense. And I think one of the questions I was going to ask you was like, kind of what are trends that you would talk about? But I think that's a perfect trend to what you're talking about on top of the heterogeneous compute and on top of the trend towards ASIC. So I guess Let's take the bear case, right? Is there anything that you think slows down semiconductor? You just talked about how, you know, the Nest thermostat, my phone, my Apple Watch, like whatever, right? All this stuff is trending. I want more of it. I'm going to buy more of it. What potentially stops it? Or are there maybe certain areas that you're just like, hey, this is going to get ransacked because no one's going to use it anymore?
1: Pretty much semiconductors, the percentage of GDP has gone up over a very long period of time, and it probably will. Essentially, as long as we continue to do electronic things in our lives, I think there will be more and more semiconductors. So that's like a pretty safe bet, if that makes sense. But the places that can maybe make that relationship not as sweet, if that makes sense, where it's like, in a perfect world, because like I write a research service about semiconductors, like my, you know, the things that would really help is we use a lot more semiconductors. But the things that kind of stop is like, technology's really clever. The people who make these things are very clever. We know how to do some deflation. So only until very recently has Moore's law like kind of hit an asymptote. And there's like kind of things that we're doing to make that less bad. And so there's ways that I think will maybe lower the need for compute. Most importantly, the ASICification of everything in a perfect world, if we took everything as it is and we like, you know, no new software languages or models or like, you know, know, the software stacks are all like solidified, which, you know, big if there, as you know, right? Like that seems like a, a hard ask. And we put it on more specialized compute, buddy, that's a lot less compute. Like, cause then then these GPU or these CPUs are like, you know, they're gone. Well, we will need CPUs to a certain extent, but then like the core, like and those are really expensive being utilized much worse. So like in a perfect universe, we're utilizing more specialized tools at a higher percentage, and the net semiconductor content is lower. But in that case, there's probably a lot more stuff so i don't know where that ends up but the specialization will be a big deflator against the inflation of of adding more intelligence to everything
0: nvidia has
1: talked a lot about software
0: and the fact that they're building software specific for their gpus right and you talked about hey they're general purpose so they can be a little bit more customizable so on and so forth right so they're creating this framework that people can do stuff to make it extensible you know make it more flexible for their various needs I'm curious, though, if we get this, which, by the way, I'm, I'm looking forward to a Substack post of ASIC specification or whatever, a specialization in, in the future. If that does happen, are we going to have more companies tying software specific to that ASIC because of the way that it could run or something like that?
1: So that's kind of one of the big opportunities for semiconductor companies that NVIDIA is is hyper-aware of, right? NVIDIA realizes, hey, we own all the hardware and there is co-design of hardware software. So in the past, I would say that people started with the software and went down. NVIDIA is one of the few companies that's starting with the hardware and going up. And I think a lot of the really small end usage stuff where it's like, hey, we're gonna have like a smart speaker coffee maker. The semiconductor companies are not dumb and some of this stuff is open source and like being good enough with a good co-optimized solution might be a much better way to enter this market so yeah there there's definitely this understanding of co-design that is like maybe a big soft lob for semiconductor companies that many like device manufacturers like very like edge smart homie stuff are, are very cognizant of and i feel like they're taking that opportunity but even with that, I want. I just want to actually talk about Nvidia as a company really quickly before we go, because like they're really impressive. Like their strategy. If you talk to Jensen, he'll say that like we don't want to ever pursue anything that's commoditized ever. Everything we have is our own proprietary, and we think we do better. And for that reason, it is better a better product. And like we just talked about the GPUs today, but something I think that is like very underrated. As like I just came back from OFC, which is optical fiber communications. Their networking is really good too. And we never talked about this, but networking is this huge bandwidth problem in these large language models. One of the biggest problems is not how fast the GPUs are but it's how fast we can get the data to the GPUs and you'd think hey maybe there's this is an opportunity for someone else no Nvidia's like really worked hard on like clamping down their ecosystem so they have these GPUs and then they kind of have this proprietary networking thing that is faster and works specifically with their GPUs in so many little ways they've really locked down their ecosystem and like yes it is general purpose but it is completely all Nvidia from the top to bottom and because they're all Nvidia from the top top to bottom they get to do all these little tricks and like get economics back to them and so they're using this truly it is a completely specialized like they are the only one who make it then they're like okay well if we make the entire hardware stack what if we make some models and also they have cuda cuda is this like software like essentially it's like this parallelization protocol to then use the gpus in a generalized way well they're like okay well that's really important and they want all the ai researchers to use cuda so that they're like hooked on cuda and there's like a an establishment of like a moat and because people will use that, then they're like, oh, wait, if we're using CUDA and we like everything's like optimized for CUDA, why don't we start going to these individual niches and making the custom stack there? Because every single AI niche will have a different need. Like the large language models, obviously done on PyTorch and stuff, but like, what about a medical usage for AI? It's like, hey, there's going to be completely specialized stack for just, you know, for like x-ray imaging or something like that so that the x-ray imaging stack is better than a human. And so they're like, Well, we have been going and since we support all of these little things, we're starting to offer this like customized solution for each an individual niche that we've already co-designed with them. And so like all of a sudden, you're like, wait, there's like hundreds of little moats and all these like little endpoints for these industry specific AI stacks. And NVIDIA's like, well, we'll sell that to you as a service. So, not only as a service, they're going to be selling to you as a service within the cloud providers. Like, they just announced like NVIDIA Cloud Services, which sounds like they'll be selling their hardware, but they'll also sell you the software as a service as you want. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? Jensen Huang is a huge brand CEO they to me have really locked in and they're also one of the best solution providers because all this sounds like a solution, right? All the other semiconductors companies do not think about, and like if you talk to Jensen, he does not think of himself as a semiconductor company. He thinks of himself as a solution provider and he's offering solutions that are vertical that start with one of the harder parts of the stack to make, which is the hardware. So very clever what they're doing. Truly, I am very frustrated by the valuation because it goes up every day and like NVIDIA is taking over the world. But like, they kind of are. And truly, the large language models, what stops compute from being two or three times bigger? Nothing. So NVIDIA really is one of the most impressive companies I'm aware of. So yeah, just have So, just we'll, have to leave on that note. Yeah.
0: We'll say not investment advice, but anytime you see NVIDIA stock going down, maybe an interesting time to take a look at it. But again, not investment advice. It's just impressive. What they've done is so cool. <laughs> well, to wrap things up, two questions we ask everyone on Software Snack Bites. What's your favorite technology or app Or anything that you've played with or researched recently?
1: I mean, ChatGPT is really fun. That's kind of a lame answer. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of writing, right? Because I write a newsletter research service. The things that I think are really interesting for is like, I don't like it to write paragraphs, but there's a lot of little things. Like, I have it write SEO for me. I have it write titles, like, hey, here's this paragraph. What would you title this? Or it's like, make a little pun. Or like, I have not written a single title without ChatGPT for the last like seven posts. It's definitely starting to be inserted into my workflow. And I really have liked the co-creation aspect with it. So that's definitely my favorite little thing. I know it's like really consensus. I wish I had something like way cooler. I have like a weird little tool if you're interested that I've always used for years for researching stuff. It's called brandimage.io. I don't know who made it, but essentially it will search Hacker News or Reddit and it'll do a sentiment analysis on it. But truly, if you've used Reddit search, it sucks. It is legitimately the only keyword Reddit search tool that I'm aware of. Awesome. Does that on Hacker News as well. So brandimage.io, I use that tool all the time for my research purposes. That'll be like a cooler one. Yeah.
0: That's a great tip. I've never heard of that before. So that is truly unique. But also, frankly, I haven't heard many people integrating it into their actual workflow either, ChatGPT. I mean, a lot of people are doing cool, you know, they're designing meal plans or stuff like that. But like, it's very cool to see you doing that. And hopefully I'll do that for my own stuff. Actually, it's a good idea. Final question. What's your favorite snack?
1: As a guy who hiked, you know, five months or whatever and ate only trash foods and snacks, I'm very opinionated on this one. I really like Dots pretzels. Every single flavor, truly, they're all great, depending on the day. And then on the sweet side, I love Oreos. Do you have a particular Dots? Because I, I like the spicy ones, but do you have a particular... The, the Cajun? You know, so though I'm not joking. It just depends on the mood. Like, I love the original, but I'll get sick of those, so I'll do the spicy. And I just tried the honey mustard. Love them. Like, truly, they do not miss. It makes you really sad to see other companies copy dots because I'm like, screw you guys. Like, there's like the big pretzels company has been making pretzel twists. And I'm like, dots was here first. Like, in 2022 or 2021, when I did that big hike, I probably ate something like 15 bags of dots alone. Like, and I would do it again. So, and I love Oreos. <laughs> Oreos are definitely my, my sweet ones. I,
0: I love that. For people to follow you, uh, and, and we'll go through that actually, but I think you've posted a lot about your hikes, some incredible, incredible journeys that you've been on and people you've interacted with and experiences that you had. So definitely recommend people not only to obviously subscribe and check out Fabricated Knowledge and also your second newsletter, which I'll ask you what the name of that is, but also just to read your content because I think you have some really cool life experiences that you've been through. But so, Doug, thank you so much for everything that going through it. I've just learned a ton. I think this is something that I'll go back to and re-listen to multiple times to just pick up all the different pieces of it. So really thank you for doing that. But how can people best find you, get in touch and and kind of mention the substacks, mention the Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever?
1: So yeah, feel free to follow me. So actually I have my main Twitter on private right now. I'll probably open that up at some point. But uh, I have fab knowledge on Twitter as my semi-hector substack. And fabricated knowledge is like definitely where most of my core effort is in my life. You know, I'm thinking dreaming, truly doing, like, thinking about semiconductors way more than I have any human should have. Actually, no, that's not true. There's a lot of people thinking way more than I should, uh, or I do, and I really appreciate all the people who work in the actual industry, because it's truly magic what's happening. Fabricated Knowledge, www.fabricatedknowledge.com, that's the substack, the core substack. I just made a new, new newsletter, because as much as I love semiconductors, I've been following it for a while, and it's been burning me out a little bit, and I like a lot of other things than just semiconductors, so Mules Musings is, like, my second newsletter, which was the original newsletter name, so it's kind of like a throwback, but I'm really excited to write about Fragrances, which is kind of having a really interesting renaissance right now, so hopefully we'll have some posts about that, and those are the two big ways to keep up with me in newsletter land. My Twitter handle is at fool all the time. Yeah, you can add me on LinkedIn at Doug O'Loughlin do whatever, man. I'm more than happy to connect. And if you have something interesting and you want to talk to me about it, I always love interesting little rabbit holes. So, and thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, great. Great to have you on, Tuggy. Thanks a
0: lot.